This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to Transformation Unplugged, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to connect you with some of the world's leading experts in health, fitness, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. To be unplugged means deciding to be unrestrained by the beliefs, expectation, and assumption of others. To make the declaration that only you can determine for yourself what the best version of you looks like based on what you authentically want and value most. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to another episode of Transformation Unplugged. Our guest today has coached 57 Olympic medalists, worked with multiple executives in Fortune 500, top-level actors, and he has shared the stage with the likes of Brian Tracy. For more than 30 years, Ken Baum has been making athletes better, improving business and sales performance while creating strategies to help people change and enhance their lives. He's a recognized leader in sports psychology and business psychology. He's innovative a published trainer and nutritionist. Ken's unique skill set is that he helps people, no matter what domain of life they work within, to get unstuck, excel in their sport, their business, or their life. One of the things that Ken prides himself on is helping the good become great and the great to become unstoppable. I know you're going to get a lot of takeaways from this interview, but stay tuned after the podcast because we only had a short period of time with Ken, about 20 to 30 minutes, and he touched upon a lot of key points that we think are worth expanding upon, and we discussed them in greater depth and detail in our outcast. Hope you enjoy the episode. Ken, excited to have you. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, it's my pleasure. I look forward to the chat. Okay, so you've coached everyone from elite athletes, I believe 57 medal-winning athletes. That by itself is outstanding. But you've also coached top-level actors, business people, and, and even other speakers at the top of their game. What would be yeah, one or two? I'm sorry. Right, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. So here's what I'm really curious about. What are one or two commonalities that you see across all of these top performers, even though their chosen professions are quite different? The commonality is the desire to get better and the desire to go ahead and revamp their system and not let their pride and ego get in their way of sticking to what they've always done, even when they're stuck. So let's talk about some common misconceptions. If you take a look on your social media feed, you'll have 27 memes within 15 minutes that talk about success, transformation, and achievement. Given your diversity of experience, what are some common misconceptions, things that people think they know, but aren't necessarily true about personal transformation? Oh, the biggest is, particularly with the advance of social media, is slogans, quotes, and reading, you know, success things of other people on a consistent basis. It doesn't change people. 
You know, bumper <laughs> sticker motivation doesn't last. You know, T-shirt slogans don't make winning teams. They just don't. What changes people is courting the mind and the body to get in sync and to realize that there are better ways of doing things. What, what is what you're doing now may be working to a certain degree, but it's not making you a world champion. It's not making you lose the weight and keep the weight off. It's not causing you to make the high school team. It's not causing you to be a uh, you know a cross country runner that that wins the league title. So a lot of people are, are settling for um, something less than their best, not knowing that they're settling because they look at mental training as a sign of weakness, not as a sign of strength. So they bombard themselves mm. with when they're going get tough, the tough get going. You know, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. If you can see it, you can do it. And all that stuff leads to empty hollowness because it doesn't lead to action. Okay, there's a lot that you said there in a very short period of time, and I want to unpack some things that stood out for me. First, how do you recognize when your mind and body are out of sync? What are the consequences of that? And how do you go about getting your mind and body in sync? Well, when we have desires we're not fulfilling, that's a red flag that our mind and body are not in sync. Uh, either the desires aren't real, or we simply are missing the tools to make them a reality. Uh, so to do that, we have to really look at what we say we want. Do we really want to lose those 30 pounds? Or is it just because a wedding's coming up, we want to look good for the pictures? You know, do we really want to be an all-star? You know, do we really want to do the work that it takes to get there? So a lot of people, you ask them, do you want to win this game? Every team will say, yeah, we want to win, we want to win. But somebody's going to lose. And so they want to win, but their mind and body aren't in harmony because they're not doing the work that winners do. They're not thinking the way winners do. They're not taking actions that winners take. And so to get that to happen, we first analyze what we say we really want. And once we determine that, we ask ourselves this question, am I willing to pay the price? If you're not willing to pay the price, then forget about the desire because it's not going to happen. A lot of people don't know what the price is. They have to identify what the price is. You know, they've got to study other great people, other people who have done what they want to do so they can have the right tools to make it happen. And then they start thinking the right actions. Now good things happen. You know, in motivational interviewing, the key is centered around enhancing intrinsic motivation and resolving ambivalence. And I think a lot of people get stuck on what ambivalence really means. And I think you're addressing it beautifully where my definition of ambivalence is where you want two things that are in direct opposition with one another. Like, you know, I want to start my own business and be my own <laughs> boss, but I want total freedom. Well, those two things don't right. always go together, at least not in the first few years. So let's say that, you know, I do believe I want to lose weight. But I'm not really sure what the true value or true motivation is. I kind of think I want it, but do I really? Are there a couple of questions I can ask myself? Or what's the litmus test for holding up my stated goals to the light and saying, right, do I really want this as badly as I say I want this? Great question. The first thing I have anybody do, athlete, actor, musician, it doesn't matter who it is, is what are your top 10 values in life? Write down the 10 most important things to do in life. Not what they're supposed to be. Not what your mom and dad think they should be. Not what your church teaches, you know? Not what society says they should be. What are the top 10 most important things to do in life? Just write them down as they come to you. Once you write them down, go back and prioritize. 
What is number one? The one that you would absolutely live or die for. Now you start getting this hierarchy of values. Now look at your goal. Does it match your hierarchy of values? If you can't link your goal to, to your highest values, your chances of success go down drastically. But if you can link your goals to your highest values and know how to use that as a tool, your chance of success is excellent. Absolutely excellent. So when you have a cause and you have a reason, the more of those you have that are linked to your values, the better your chance of success. I think that is one of the most beautiful answers we've gotten on this podcast so far. One of the presuppositions of our entire organization is that people behave in perfect congruence with their highest values. A lot of times they're not really clear on what that is. So like when you're struggling, it's no, you're not lazy, weak, unmotivated. A lot of people struggle with weight loss, but they built several successful companies, which to my knowledge is not a likely accomplishment for someone who's lazy, unmotivated, and lacks willpower. So there's something else that has to be going on there. And sometimes it's, you know, I'm, I'm attempting to pursue a lower level value at the expense of a higher level value. That's really not going to work out very well, is it? It's not. In fact, to give you a great example, I, I trained for, for a long time, uh, a president of a major international multi-billion dollar company who, who was drafted in two pro sports out of high school, an incredible physical specimen, um, worth millions and millions of dollars, lives a great life, but carries about an extra 100 pounds. And he has willpower. He has drive. He has determination. But he had a gazillion reasons why he had to be fat and why it was getting in his way for his next job to, to get a higher base salary and put him in that upper echelon of CEOs around the world. And he had all these reasons of why he could do it if he wanted to. I've done all these great things. I can do this. But he kept coming back to me. And we got him, we, we had him, he lost 85 pounds just doing the mental stuff with me. 85 pounds in, in, in a little over a year. He did it in a really healthy way. But what happened was we tapped into his higher need and the reasons of why. We didn't go into weight loss and, and how he looked in clothes or his heart. He might have a heart attack. None of that mattered to him. What mattered to him was being in that upper echelon of salaried CEOs. And that's the calling card. That's what we kept pounding on. And it freaking worked excellently. So all the traditional interventions and motivational strategies that would be employed by a health club, which is where they arrive at an assumption about what motivates you and stay very superficial in their interaction about your goals and needs. All that stuff causes people who haven't resolved those conflicts to kind of like bump up against themselves continually where you circumvented that by identifying what is truly most meaningful to that individual and all of that previous struggle no longer was an obstacle. That's, that's amazing. I, I, you know, I love that. I was, I was on the internet and just looking you up a little bit, not in a weird cyber stalking way, well, actually a, a little bit actually, but you talked about, past failures and negative experiences. And you know, I, I think we've all observed people that don't take the actions they need to take in the present because they just don't believe it's going to lead to a compelling future because of negative experiences and failures they've endured in the past. So somebody is listening to this right now who is like, yeah, they're talking about me. How do these individuals reframe failures and negative past experiences 
in a way that can support future success? Another great question because a lot of people get into these ruts and they don't know how to get out. So one of the things I teach is there is no failure, only feedback. Now, the positive of that is you can learn from everything. The negative is some people get used to losing and have no problem with it because, hey, there's no failure, only feedback, right? So the balance is losing causes winning when we take proper actions that we learn from losing. In life, it's the same thing. You know, we, we lose a job. We don't move up the ladder. Uh, we have relationship issues. All these things are giving us feedback. We lost a girl. We lost a guy, right? Our kids are, are turning out the way we'd like them to. Well, that's all feedback. What do we do with it? Well, we analyze what's causing that unwanted feedback. Mm -hmm. And then we take the steps to correct that. And then we change the steps. We get a new result. It always happens. Thought leads to action. Action leads to result. If you want to change your results, you must change your thinking. Too many people don't do that, or they pump themselves up with positive thinking or the secret or whatever it might be, and it doesn't freaking work. What? Because so they you're don't telling emphasize me that my thoughts do not affect cosmic events, and if I, like, wish for a car, it's not going to show up in my garage. Is that what you're saying? Hey, absolutely. And, and <laughs> one of the things that drives me nuts, it drives me freaking nuts, is, is just give it to the universe, and the universe is going to answer. That's a bunch of BS. The universe does nothing unless you take action. That's just all there is to it. You can't win the lottery unless you buy a freaking ticket, right? You can't make the baseball team if you keep throwing with improper technique that you, know, you can't throw a strike and you want to be a great pitcher. You can't just think that away. You've got to take the actions to correct the mechanics and then groove it in mentally and physically. Now you've got ownership. Now you've got a new pitcher. Now all of a sudden you're playing in the major leagues. So, so what I hear so much is, is almost a um, – it's almost like it's setting people up for failure or being on this treadmill of, of positive motivational quotes and thinking and everybody knows and they, 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 they believe, but nothing's changing, nothing's happening. And the reason why is they're not taking the actions, but they often then begin to feel really good about where they are, even though it's not where they want to be. Hmm. You, you, you know, <laughs> I could so relate to, to what you're saying. And one thing that, I've always experienced. Now, I understand my experiences are not universal experiences. They're just mine and they're limited. Is everything that I've ever excelled in, I chose it not necessarily because I was looking to become a high achiever, but because I was so in love with what it is I was doing that I was able yep. to stay within the rigor of the process because to me, the payoff was in the process. The payoff wasn't going to work and achieving this, although that happened. It was, hey, I get to engage every single day, and I love this stuff. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that's a huge um, gift to yourself to do what you love. You know, success will follow. That, that is true. The level of success is going to be different, but the success will follow. i got to tell you an interesting story to show you how – how motivation works sometimes. And instead of always being positive, 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 I had a woman come to me. I had a sports training gym and uh, mainly trained athletes. And she came in to me to want to lose weight to a referral. I said, you know, that's not what I do, but let's talk. So we talked a little bit. And what she told me at about five foot three, 225 pounds, uh, 51 years old, that she was happy being heavy. 
she she loved her life. She is a pampered princess. She was a cheerleader in high school, and she married a multimillionaire. They're worth about 220 million bucks. Had a beautiful house in Coronado Island, another one in Laguna Niguel. And she likes being heavy, but she doesn't want to be heavy because everybody wants her to to get healthy and live, and she wants to be able to uh, you know see her grandkids. So we we talked, and and I. I, you know, we, we chatted and I tried to use positive motivation with her and how good she would look and all these things and didn't phase her. Uh, she would miss workouts. She, she, she would have an excuse. And finally, one day I had her warming up on the bike and they said, look, here's what's going to happen to you. You're going to keep eating your Twinkies in your bed and people are going to wait on your hand and foot. You're going to be a princess just like you want to be. And then about at 60, your diabetes is going to be so bad. They're going to cut off your, your, your leg at mid shin. Um, and you're not going to be able to walk. You're going to keep getting bigger and fatter and heavier. You're going to be a princess. You're going to die in your bed, in your sleep of a massive heart attack. And that's what's going to happen. So if that's the direction you want to go, I don't want to train you anymore. If, if you, if you want to do something else, let me know. And she was offended. She was, ticked off. She, she mm-hmm. stormed out of there. And that night she called me back later and apologized. I said, you know what? You're absolutely right. So what happened was doing that huge negative takeaway brought her to her senses as opposed to the positive dangling the carrot in front of her. Everybody is motivated differently. And that's the great, that's the magic is finding out what really drives people. So you can get away from external motivation and catchphrases to intrinsic internal drive that they own and can kind of jumpstart them and get their life in the, in the direction they want. Well, I think the difference there that I notice is the external positive thinking motivation is driven by popular self-help where what you're talking about is supported by empirical evidence. So if you take a look at the work of Dr. James Petraska, and he was working with people with serious addictions, gambling addictions mostly, and he's the pioneer of the trans-theoretical model of change. Within the first few Mm -hmm. level phases of change, when somebody is first getting started, they're more preoccupied with loss aversion than they are with the desire for gain. I mean, and and think about that based (laughs) on all of human history. If our ancestors were so focused on hunting for the fattest elk or the sweetest berry, but they weren't more vigilant about predators and safety, well, they never would have lasted long enough to procreate. None of us would be here. Our brain's hardwired that way, not because we're wired for negativity, because we are wired for propagation of the species and therefore survival until our DNA can replicate itself at least. But when we talk about <laughs> success and failure, it's, it's the truth. You know, I, Absolutely. You, use, you use a lot of references with sport, and that's probably because you've trained so many athletes. But I think, you know, no matter what sport you love, whether you love football or soccer, rugby, American football, baseball, the only way that you could discern the winners from the losers is because everybody agrees upon what game you're playing and what the rules are. So what's your personal definition for success? It comes down to living life on your terms and fulfilling your expectations. If a person can do that, that's a life well lived. If you can do that without hurting people, hurting people in the process, you know, that's a pretty good life. It's not about being a superstar athlete or a great actor. I can't tell you how many people I know that I'll keep the names personal who have great successes and terrible, miserable, unhappy lives. 
So what's the point of that? So find that balance, you know, live life on your terms, get the success that you feel you need. Along the way, you can still be a good person, enjoy life and not needlessly hurt people. The last question I want to ask you on the back of that, because my suspicion is that people are listening to that and it's like, yeah, that sounds right. However, so many people are not living their truths. They're living other yep. people's expectations. And whether they're doing that for, for love and approval or, or because they've been grown up in a culture where things are good and bad and there are two types of people, people like me, good people and other people <laughs> who are, of course, bad people. What do you do? This might, this might be a loaded and very large question. But how do you discern whether or not you're living your truth or you've basically been lying to yourself and you're living other people's expectations? And, and what do you do to break out of that cycle? That's a tough one. And it's yeah. tough because we, we are a product of our environment in so many cases. And I see children brought to me, you know, 16-year-old swimmers, 12-year-old surfers, 18-year-old prodigy basketball players. and they think they're living their lives, but then again, sometimes they're not sure. They think they're living their parents' lives. And so where's the balance? You know, you're introduced to the clarinet and you become a great musician, but you don't really like clarinet. But then again, you don't want to give it up because you've been playing it your whole life. Uh, you know, it's, it's a tricky thing whether you're living your life or somebody else's life. I'll tell you this though, everybody can change everybody. If I lived other people's expectations, I would be dead right now. I would, mm -hmm. I would have lived the life of an unemployed alcoholic, probably gone to jail and prison multiple times. And that's the path that was set out for me. Um, when I dropped out of high school, my senior year, my best friend blew his brains out. I had no ambition, no drive. I was shot. I was, I didn't know what I wanted, wow. but, but through education and knowledge, through learning, through reading, through my friend's suicide, got me to read psychology on my own. At the time, I, I didn't even know how to spell the word, right? I didn't know how to spell psychology. But because of trying to figure out what happened to my best friend, I was a basketball player. My life was basketball. And then my life was nothing. Nothing mattered. So through education, through the initiative on my own, I made myself um, as successful as I, I could be in business and spun that off to be a business trainer. And from that, I decided I was going to be a sports psychologist. And here I am talking to you now with 57 world Olympic champions to, to my, to my name with a bunch of others that I've been able to help uh, with their lives and, the, and their sports. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. It's about education. It's about finding the path and following it and not giving up when things get tough. Believe me, man, I'm telling you, I failed multiple times at other ventures. I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars making mistakes, but I've learned to just don't quit. Keep going. Wow, that, that, that's, that's an inspiring story, and that's wisdom right there. I mean, people can acquire um, knowledge. They can even acquire expertise, but I think wisdom is the result of having experiences and unfortunately sometimes very painful experiences and reflecting upon those. So that, that's an amazing level of wisdom there. My guess is in a 20-minute podcast, we're not even going to come close to scratching the surface to all the value that you have to offer. So where can we find you? Um, where can we buy your products, your books? Where do we engage with Ken Baum? 
I appreciate that. Amazon.com has their book, The Mental Edge. It's coming up on its 20th anniversary in 2019. And that's an excellent book to learn how to use mental training for sports and business. Another one called Mind Over Business, also a major publisher. It's, a, it's an audio book and a, and a, a hardcover book. Uh, audible.com carries those. In fact, you get it for free if you go into audible.com and register. If you've never been there before, your free book could be the, the Mind Over Business. Go to KenBombMentalEdge.com. KenBombMentalEdge.com. We've got a new program called um, Mental Edge Meditations. Seven-minute meditations that will change your life quickly. That's going to be available December the 12th. Um, That's I thank you guys for I your time. Personally. Thank you. Excellent. All right, brother. Thanks you guys for take here. care. Thank you again for the opportunity. Hey there, listeners. This is Eric Hansen, founder and CEO of Coached. Today's episode featured Ken Baum, a sports psychologist who has successfully helped hundreds of people achieve high performance in their careers and personal lives. Ken's ability to help people change behaviors has been his calling card for decades. So when our team at Coach had a chance to sit down and discuss Ken's short interview, you can imagine there were a lot of questions that went unanswered. I had the chance to eavesdrop on some of that conversation, and it was so good, I wanted to make sure that we included some of the highlights for you to hear as well. Let's take a look at a coaching model this way. And we'll simplify the coaching model and we'll break down our environment and what happens to us and our reactions into A, B, and C. So A would be an activating event or this is a trigger. And a lot of times, you know, we're not even consciously aware of what our triggers are, but we feel when somebody trips them. And then the way we interpret that meaning, right, or, or, or what we do, how we react, well, that creates a consequence. And sometimes those consequences could be very bad. And sometimes those consequences could be good. Or, or they might have even been useful for a certain period of our lives. And then given the context of where we're at, they're no longer useful. But you've got to ask yourself, what lies in between A and C? And obviously, that's B and that's belief. That was Bobby Capuccio. Bobby has been a leader in the fitness industry for over 20 years. He has been helping people transform their lives and has helped thousands of coaches become, well, better coaches. This has been his personal mission for over his entire professional career. And when Bobby talks, everybody listens. After interviewing Ken, Bobby had a few things to say about belief and how beliefs affect our actions. So how we react to an activating event or a trigger is completely related to what we believe about it. Here's, here's really a crude example, but I know this has happened to absolutely everybody. Some people will deny it, but it happened to you as well. Let's say you're waiting for somebody and they say, well, I'll meet you at this restaurant at 7 p.m. And maybe this is a date or this is your partner. And let's just say that you grew up in a household where you had abandonment issues. So your attachment style gave you some really strong and sensitive triggers because e either mom or dad left. They just picked up. They disappeared when you were a young child. And, you know, mom and dad, that's your whole sense of safe security in the world. One of them leaves. That's pretty traumatic. So you've got this thing with abandonment. And it, it's 7 o'clock and your partner's not there. 
Now it's 7.05 and it's 7.10. And when they finally walk in at 7.20, there's a lot of different ways you can react. Now, if your belief is, oh, my partner, God, they're so absent-minded, they're always late. Your response can be as simple as, you know what, I'm going to order another drink here at the bar. I'm going to strike up a conversation with the bartender. And it's absolutely no worries. Person walks through the front door and your reaction is you're just happy that they arrived when they did. So you're going to give them a big hug, big kiss, big smile. It's a non-event. Now, that's going to create a very different consequence across the evening than if you were thinking they're in an accident. Oh, my God. I know something happened to them. Oh, they're never late. What happened? You try to call their phone. Their phone died. You're panicked when they come in. You're panicked. They get panicked. And that's going to create a different consequence versus your issues from childhood kickoff. And now it's going to be like, I know they don't think about me. I'm not even important enough for them to plan to be here. So they walk through the front door and they're like, hi. And like, yeah, hey. Well, that's going to create a completely different evening and a series of consequences throughout the rest of the night. And eventually those consequences, what we believe about the activating events in our lives, it's not just going to affect that night because things like that are going to happen in series over the course of our lifetime. We usually don't behave in a radical way once. It usually forms into a pattern. So that might be the very thing that ends our relationships and we never identify. So that's one way beliefs are critical. Another way is, you know, let's say you see someone who they know they need to do some work, but they're confused and they never seem to really get going or put in the effort. We might look at that person or we might look at ourselves and go, oh, I'm just so lazy. Where if you take a look at what's lying between A and C, it's a lack of belief. Where if I don't believe that the effort I put in is going to produce the reward, well, why would I ever do that? So what I define as laziness or, or I tell people I'm just not motivated, that's the story I use to explain what's happening. But what's really happening is I don't believe where if I absolutely believe that even though things go wrong and, and that I can't control everything, when I do fail, I interpret it as a single isolated event internalize that as being a person and therefore I don't react that way and I might get going straight away. As a matter of fact, I might take that as feedback and that might actually give me the motivation to move further along because I have this deep resolute belief in my ability to bring about a result. We can call that ecology self-effort. So he, he had a really good point there. What I think the issue is with a lot of people is what if I don't believe? <laughs> like, you know, I'm, all, I'm missing free throws. I have to believe. Well, where do I now go on the basketball team where they start dispensing belief to me like soda from a vending machine and now my problem's fixed? Do you know what I mean? The thing that I think about is, you know, when we, we talk about the difference between what somebody believes and what their actions are, what their triggers are, you know, I felt like what Ken was saying, he said a lot of really important things, but they were very kind of like 30,000 foot viewish, right? There wasn't a lot of actionable intelligence or actionable uh, takeaways from it. Like, yeah, you need to be able to believe that you can accomplish something. But like Bobby said, what, what if you don't believe it? Like, what's the next step? How do I get from not believing that I'm worthy or not believing that I'm, I'm capable or not believing that, 
that the effort I put into it is going to come out with a positive outcome to something that does get that right. And I think that's where the other things that, that Michelle and Greg were saying that, that it, it's, it's small steps, um, a little at a time, right. That, that set progress in motion. And that was Josh Elsesser. Josh spends his days at coach developing the way our mobile application helps coaches deliver content to our clients. Josh is very pragmatic and his coaching style is very simple, yet very effective. Josh is always making sure that our coaches start by giving clients achievable tasks so the changes in habit that are required are easy to digest and more quickly become ingrained in day-to-day activities. Go with what the data says. And you know, there's, there's two ways you can look at this. You can look at habit formation from a psychological perspective, and then you can look at habit formation a biological perspective because at, at the end of the day whenever you see somebody performing really what you're looking at is the sum total of the habits that he or she has created over time i think warren buffett said the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken you know we become our habits and habits make very benevolent servants but tyrannical masters So if we look at it from a psychological perspective, we're working on a couple of principles. The first principle is cognitive dissonance. And that's kind of like an internal duress that kind of ensues when I try to hold two worldviews in mind and still function. And one way that cognitive dissonance shows up is inconsistency. You know, because consistency is linked to identity, which we've discussed on other podcasts, and certainty. And it's, it's almost like, I want to be consistent with what I've believed, said, and what I've done personally with what I believe, say, and do now. And, and, and you know, that could, be, that could be an ally. That could be a big enemy. Um, you know, like Emerson said, that consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. Um, well, what do you mean by that? Well, if I'm someone who historically takes a certain course of action or I fail to take a certain course of action, I'm going to want to be kind of consistent with that. But if I start to contradict my previous behaviors, if I start to contradict my previous actions and my public declarations, and it's got to be on a very small level so it doesn't present that big of a threat, the more frequently and consistently I engage in a contradictory behavior, well, then I have to start explaining that to myself. Because that causes internal duress because it's disrupting the consistency that I strive for. So eventually, I start to wrap my beliefs around my behaviors. I I think from a psychological perspective, that's kind of useful. Because instead of saying, hey, I'm going to conjure up all this belief. And once I believe, I'm going to engage in these behaviors. What if we went the opposite direction? I'm going to engage in these very small behaviors that are manageable and modifiable when things inevitably don't work out the exact way I planned them to or wanted them to. And as I start to get better in engaging in these behaviors and expanding the frequency and size of the behaviors that I'm engaging in, my beliefs are going to reshape themselves to my actions. That's quite a different perspective. As we continued to discuss the interview with Ken Baum, I asked our team to help our listeners become more clear on why Ken was so adamant about action. Bobby immediately referred to Michelle Dalcourt, a guest from a prior episode of Transformation Unplugged. 
Bichol is one of the most respected minds in fitness and health, and the idea of habit stacking that he introduced to us got to the heart of how we can best take action to change our lives. So when we had Michelle, Michelle is probably one of the foremost experts around health coaching globally. You know, he's, he's got clients such as Apple, Nike, he's on the advisory board of Equinox. And he was pulling from the research talking about habit stacking. Now, I think habit stacking is one, not easy, I don't want to say that it's easy, but it's one palatable and bite-sized way of initiating perpetuating behaviors because it deals with what you're already doing. You know, it's a different level of difficulty as well as a different perspective where I'm going to start to do something tomorrow that I've never done versus I'm going to take a habit that's already hardwired into my behavior patterns. It's hardwired into my neural networks. And I'm just going to tweak that and expand upon it so that it's directed towards the fulfillment of something that's particularly important. And here's an example. Let's say every morning somebody wakes up and you know, they've got three kids and they've got to get the kids to work. They've got to go to school. <laughs> okay, they've got to get the kids to school. And what they do before the kids wake up or before they head out to the office, they go for a coffee, right? And they take a drive to get that coffee. Um, another, an, another example could be a student, right? I know every day I go to take classes at university. So what you know you already do is, is you already go for the coffee or you already go to school, that's good because you're not likely to stop that behavior. Because if you take a look at it and say, well, how many days have I missed school? Well, last semester, zero. So you're already taking an activity that you have a high level of adherence to, and you're just attaching something to it by doing it differently. So one thing could be, you know what? My coffee shop is a half a mile away from my house. It only takes me two minutes to drive, but it takes me 10 minutes to walk. Maybe I can get up a little bit earlier. Maybe I sit in there a little bit less. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and walk to and from the coffee shop. So I'm now walking one mile per day. And that's built into something I already do. Now, what's going to happen, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, is you're, going to, you're kind of going to do an appraisal two weeks later. You're going to say to yourself, wow, you know, I'm, I, I either haven't met that commitment, I wound up taking the car, and you're going to tell yourself a story about why that's happening, or you're going to say, wow, I've been walking a mile almost every day for the past two weeks. So now you start to elevate what we would call self-efficacy. Your belief in your ability to initiate and perpetuate certain actions in correspondence with a goal has elevated. So then you say to yourself, you know what? maybe when I'm going on my little walks, I'm going to download a book on how to achieve my fitness goals. And I'm going to listen to that book on my way to and from the coffee shop. So now I'm not only walking to and from the coffee shop, going from zero to one mile every day, which if you take a look at that and put that in perspective, in and of itself is a huge amount of progress for somebody that was completely sedentary. But now... You, you're the type of person that actually studies and learns and researches way to improve your health, your mind, and your body. So let's say at the end of another two weeks, say, you know what? 
I think I'm going to start to jog. I'm going to pick up the intensity. You're, you've now gone from a non-exerciser to an exerciser to someone who is as much of an exerciser as they would go ahead and jog to and from a coffee shop. So you're jogging a mile a day. And then you say, you know what? I've saved a little bit of time by jogging. When I get home, before I start my day, I think I'm going to add meditation. And then when you get to the office, you realize that you're less stressed, more focused, more creative. And now your behavior pattern is connected to things that you value, and it reinforces those behaviors. And before long, all of these habits is not something you do. It becomes essentially who you are. And it all started by doing something you're already going to do anyway, just doing it slightly differently. And it reshapes your belief. Again, it's that belief around what you're capable of and probably even more importantly, around your identity, who you are. So that's what we talk about when we're talking about habit patterns. And, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of strategies around, you know, what do you do when you win? Like at the end of two weeks, how do you evaluate yourself? Or well, what happens if you don't keep your commitments? You know, what do you do there before you spiral into counterproductive explanations? But essentially, that's what a coach would do when creating habit stacking in, in the lives of their clients. And that's something that you can use. So I have a couple of questions around that. Um, so is the is the the premise then that those habits uh, kind of become like happen organically? Like at like the way you mentioned it, you're like, oh, I'm going to start to walk, and then I'm going to you know download a book. Like like is the the premise that that as you add something to a, a pre existing habit, that additional habits start to happen organically, or is there some kind of suggestion that goes into that? My answer is yes and no. <laughs> and people hate when I answer that way because right. very often if you're doing something and you get a biochemical reward from doing it, you're going to organically do it again. Like if you go out with someone that you're really attracted to and you, know, you went out to dinner, you, know, you, you might organically ring them up and be spontaneous. You don't have to have a strategy there the dopamine release that rewards the behavior in the first place is, hey, I want to do that again. However, in traditional habit stacking, if I was working with a client, I would be rather strategic about that. So at the end of implementing one small behavior change, in this case, I think we use the example of walking to and from the coffee shop, what I would say is, hey, you know what, Josh, um, that's, that is an amazing job. Why do you think you were so successful? You know, talk to me about why you believe you had the level of adherence you had. What are two strengths that you now know you possess based on the past two weeks that you didn't know you possessed before this? And then we would get into, okay, what, on a scale from one to 10, what's your level of willing and readiness to implement one more behavior? So if somebody says, well, I'm at an eight, that's a different level of commitment than someone who's at like a three. Say, okay, well, let's say they say a five. Here's a couple of examples. Why don't we do this, Josh? You come up with one thing that you could do over the next two weeks to add on to what you've already been doing walking. Then I'll give an answer. Then you give an answer. And by the time we get to six, that's three each, let's decide which one of those you think is most reasonable, giving your goals and your priorities. 
And then we would pick that one. And from then, another two, week or two, we would pick another one. Does that, does that answer that? Yeah, it does. And, and then the, the other question, and, and I'm, my presumption is that the, the habit stacking is, is essentially we're adding to something that's pre-existing versus taking something away, which I feel like the industry itself is very big on, you know, instead of, you know, adding the walk to the coffee shop, most trainers, coaches, whatever would say, you need to stop drinking the coffee, right? Like they're looking at the negative habit of whatever's in that coffee, right? Because most people think of Starbucks or whatever is full of sugar and all those things. It's a negative thing. And it sounds like that it was, it's less of stop doing something that's unhealthy for you and let's add something in that is healthier. Is that a, is that a correct assumption as well? Well, yes. I, I think it goes even deeper than that. And I'm really glad you brought that particular point up because years ago I'm sitting, I'm sitting in a seminar and it's a training seminar. And at the end of the seminar, towards the end, when it gets to how to sell personal training, um, the person running the seminar says something to the effect of, you're going to ask throughout the entire session <clears throat> what these people's habits are, like how often they go out to eat, uh, how often do they have a drink, how many drinks do they have you know, per evening, how many evenings in the week do you do that? And you're adding all this up and you're kind of thinking, okay, well, that makes sense. Health and fitness goals, my dietary habits, my sleep habits my drinking habits, all of those make sense. But at the end, what it actually was is when the person says, well, I cannot afford personal training, the trainer was instructed to turn to this potential client to say, well, Josh, you see all these negative habits that you have here? You're, you go out for coffee in the morning, your bottle of wine, you go out to eat in the evenings. If you get rid of all of this, you could afford to have me as a trainer. Now, I'm sitting next to an executive vice president, and she just is going mental. And she's like, can I talk to you outside, please? I said, yeah, sure. And she says, you know, my husband works in a completely different industry than I do, but we're both very busy. And the only time that we know we can get together where we don't have to sort out the house, career, or kid and we can almost have a mini date and connect intimately, not physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy as a couple, is we have coffee breaks and coffee dates every single morning. See, we go out together, we go to Starbucks, and then we go our separate ways. And we sit in Starbucks for a minimum of 30 minutes, and that's the way we connect with each other first before we go out and tackle things in the outside world. You know, if a trainer told me, I had to give that up without first having the foresight and the, and the compassion to say, well, what does this habit mean to you? Why do you have coffee out versus why do you have coffee at home? It would kill my rapport with that trainer. So, wow, you could not be more correct about that. So which I believe people generally behave in pretty close congruence with their highest values. And for her, that relationship, that connection, that conversation, that intimacy was a high level value. Asking her to give up coffee wasn't just asking her to give up Starbucks. It was asking her to give up her intimacy with her husband. And so in other words, she had to sacrifice one of her highest level values for a lower level supporting value. 
I don't care. Now, this, this woman's very accomplished. She was an executive vice president. She had an amazing resume. I don't care how accomplished you are. I don't care how disciplined or motivated you are. When you have to sacrifice what matters most for something that matters least or at least less, you're not going to win that battle. You're going to wage a never-ending war against yourself. So if, if you're giving up something, probably might not be a great place to start. It might be a good place to go to, but the client always decides that for the client's reasons. That's, that's something that, that's a conclusion we have to arrive at. It cannot be imposed upon us. Yeah, I, I like that because, you know, early on in my career, I was taught to sell the exact same way that you were describing. Like when you started that, that conversation, I knew exactly where you were going because I've done that exact same thing numerous times, you know, in, in trying to get somebody to be, to be a client of mine or, or to sell them training or something of that effect. Um, I guess we're and that. That's definitely an aspect of it that I, that I feel is, is uh, people try and use the psychology of, of that stuff to try and influence or create some kind of change, but they're doing it in a very negative way versus a positive way. The, the thing that I liked about the definition or the way you described habit stacking and and unknowingly, I've been doing it that way without knowing that that's the, that there was an actual name for it or a, a technique. But um, I was thinking back to a, a remote coaching client that I've been working with for a few months. And she, you know, has a number of challenges in her life. One of those being that she works, uh, you know, night shifts like uh, a couple times a week. And it's very difficult for her to uh, eat correctly while she's on those night shifts. So in, in working with her on the, on the different habits we wanted to have, she came up with some that those just didn't work out for her at first. So we decided to back off quite a bit on, on what the aggressiveness of what her habits were, right? Like I'm very big on going super small steps first and then building on that momentum over time. Um, Absolutely. So, what she, so what she decided was she was going to work on drinking more water because she predominantly drank diet soda and energy drinks that was her that was what she drank on all day long and all night long working at, at the she's a psychologist like a psych nurse at a um at a prison actually and um it was interesting because we started talking about her adding more water in so then we started coming up with strategies about it and how she was going to make sure she could implement that and different things she could do to make sure that she had water with her so that she would be set up for success right like kind of going back to what we talked what eric mentioned about setting your kitchen up to, to, for success. So if you have a bunch of junk food or if you, if you don't have the right types of tools and utensils, you're, you're not going to eat the, you're not going to have the things to be able to make it. And you're going to come up with excuses. So it was interesting. So we came up with all these strategies and then right before we got, you know, off the phone, she made a comment to me, which was, yeah, it's just going to be really hard giving up those, those diet, those diet sodas and those energy drinks. And I stopped her and I said, hold on a second. Where in the conversation did we ever say that you're not going to drink those things? Like, I'm pretty sure all we talked about was adding water into your day. Like, I don't want you to stop drinking those things because what happens in your mind is when you start thinking about what I can't have, that actually becomes a, a bigger motivating piece for you mentally and psychologically than what you can have. And I go, I don't want you to stop drinking those things. As a matter of fact, I want you to keep those in your day, no matter what. I just want you to make sure that you, you drink the water before you drink those other things. And she was like, wow, are you serious? And I was like, yeah, like that's the, like I'm not taking something away from you right now. We're trying to make you healthier, but I'm not going to do it in a way that's going to give you additional stress. And she was so blown away by that approach. It was like, I can't believe that 
you're a coach or a trainer and you're telling me that I could still drink these things. And I was like, well, yeah, like everybody that's, that I, I feel like that's the, the, the way that the industry is created, right? Like we're always talking about, you have to deprive yourself. You have to, you have to change. You have to take things out of your diet. Like you're doing all these bad things in, in, in which they may be right. They, and, and a lot of people have traditionally really bad nutrition, uh, hydration, exercise, movement, all these types of habits. But when we start to take something away from somebody that they're, that they're, that is, is a comfort to them, right? Whether it's a, a, a coffee in the morning with their, with their spouse, whether it's an energy drink, whether it's, uh, you know, a television show that they want to watch, like, you know, how often do we, do we hear the, you know, everybody has the same amount of time in the day. It's just a matter of how you prioritize it. Like, well, yeah, but it's hard. Like you can't necessarily take what somebody else's priorities and, and immediately place that on some, on, on a different person and expect them to have the same outcome or reaction or, or even uh, mental or emotional feeling about it. Yeah. So I, I love the concept of, you know, what we're doing is we're adding to a, to a, to a habit that they're, they're comfortable and they're, and they're, they're happy with, but that the thing that we're adding to it is going to enhance their health or their, their fitness in some way and allow that to organically grow over time. So to see that, that, you know, eventually maybe they decide that, that drinking that coffee is not the healthiest thing for them. So then they, they, they switch to drinking a tea or, or something to that effect, but right. So that they're not totally taking that habit out, but they're modifying that habit in a way that would allow them to be a little bit healthier as well. I, I love that concept. And that's where these things will <coughs> occur organically at some point. What was interesting about what you just said there is her comment to you. I cannot believe that you work in this space and you're not taking away everything I love. Because, yeah. because think about that. Like somebody who sits down and watches TV two hours a night, they watch Netflix. Well, if I'm someone who believes that all TV, it's a blanket statement, is nothing but chewing gum for the brain, I've heard that used before. Yeah. Well, I don't watch TV. So therefore, people who watch TV are lazy or they're not resourceful. They're not committed to something. That's a greater use of their time. Meanwhile, I love the way you put it where there's a motive there. There's a basic need that's going met. There's a meaning behind what that TV actually represents. And very often, if we can understand exactly what need we're meeting or what that represents, as we start to move along and get more confident and develop more self-efficacy, we organically start to replace certain behaviors. So that TV might be a way that you can connect with your family and decompress. But later on, as you're an exerciser, it might be, hey, love, you want to go take a walk by the beach or take a walk through the park? And that's where you start to organically replace things. I think it's important not to label things as good or bad because we all play the good or bad game. Um, I, I was working with a data scientist the other day, and it was interesting to hear her talk about this, is a lot of times what fails is labeling, well, you're bad and I'm good, because I have good behaviors, and if your behaviors don't match mine, well, that's bad. Rather, what if we went into what the research said? Because believing something with intensity doesn't make it true. That's a conviction bias. Well, I believe that people need to start over tomorrow and be flawless. So you're going to need to get rid of all this stuff because that's what works. Now, it's only worked for 10% of my clients. I look at my success stories who might have come to me at a different stage of change. I point to them, but I don't look at the 90% of people 
that it didn't work out because after all, I told them what to do. If they don't do that, well, I guess those 90% didn't want it badly enough. Where if I look at the research, I said, well, what about the trans theoretical model of change? Because we're in the change business, in the early phases of change, most people are most sensitive to loss aversion. So it's not necessarily what I'll get as a result of this new behavior, but what do I stand to lose? And very often behaviors are selected based on the lesser of two evils. There's something I don't want, but there's something I don't want even more. So we have to respect that loss aversion. And taking things away kind of reinforces that, where if we just hang in there and work on micro behaviors and habit stacking within 30, 60, 90 days, which th th think about where you are one year ago today, that's a very relative short period of time, you will start self-selecting through your own self-determination the types of behaviors that your trainer would have wanted to impose upon you. You're going to get, you're likely to get there anyway if you start properly and you understand your motives, not just play the good or bad game. We hope you enjoyed today's episode as we went a bit deeper into Ken Baum's philosophy on personal transformation. Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transformation Unplugged. Our affiliate partner for this episode is Coached. That's C-O-A-C-H-D. If you download their app or go to their website and choose to work with one of their world-class coaches, they're offering all listeners of this podcast a 20% discount. All you got to do is use the code TRANSFORMATIONUNPLUGGED. See you on the next episode.